Welcome in, you knotheads. You've arrived in the nick of time. I am your host, Nick Cormier, here to discuss with you the goings-on in pop culture, television, movies, entertainment, and current events. Today's podcast, we're going to go ahead and chat about the newest episode of Better Call Saul, uh, the final season of this brilliant goat show. Bah! Uh, then we'll go ahead and discuss a little bit of The Gray Man, uh, Netflix's new movie with Ryan Gosling, Chris Evans, Anna DeArmas. We'll chat about the Marvel Comic-Con paddle that, panel that just happened this past weekend at San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, we'll definitely chat about the Old Man finale for real this time. And then we'll uh, go ahead and end up catching up with Yellow Jackets, television show that's been nominated for Best Drama Series with the Emmys. Uh, the only one I haven't actually seen yet, so I'm catching up on that for the purposes of the Emmy Awards. All right, stay tuned. All right, let's go ahead and start off with our now weekly, at least for the next month, discussion about Better Call Saul. This episode this week was titled Nippy, and it features Saul, or Gene Takovic, his uh, persona in the future, uh, doing some good old-fashioned slipping Jimmy impressions. So, we uh, a couple seasons back, we got introduced uh, to a man who introduced himself to Gene Takovic at the mall, uh, just outside of the Cinnabon. And he said that he knew about his past, right? He knew who he was from Albuquerque. Uh, that man's name was Jeff. And the thing is with Jeff, um, not very bright, right? And we learned that in this episode through a series of events. But it starts off with Carol Burnett um, guest starring as Jeff's mother and... You know, Saul is putting up posters, rather Gene, sorry. Gene is putting up posters for Nippy, a little dog that has gone missing. Of course, we know that Gene Takovic has no such dog. He's never been an animal lover. So at the end of the day, this is a farce, classic con being pulled by Jimmy, Gene, uh, Saul here. But Jeff realizes when he gets home that, that Gene, Saul, Jimmy is in his kitchen talking with his mother, Carol Burnett, and having some some tea. Uh, and Jeff is put off knowing that the man he was v- giving veiled threats to is now in his home with his mother. So that's already a thing, right? They go to the trash can, and Gene uses that as a moment to tell Jeff, listen, I know what you want. You don't want to tell on me. You don't want to inform on me. You don't want to let people know back in New Mexico about me. You just want me to show you how I became the man, the myth, the legend, right? So his innuendo there is that you want to be like me, Jeff. You don't want to rat me out, which potentially is what Jeff wants because he goes hook, line, and sinker for the plot that Gene is slowly hatching on him. So we see Gene begin to start making Cinnabons for the security guards at the mall. So the plot here is that he's, of course, trying to butter up security so he can learn about how they do their security night checks for the mall so that he can set up a job for Jeff and show him just how easy it is to get away with crime, right? 
So understanding fully well that no one knows better how to pull a con job than slipping Jimmy. Good old slipping Jimmy, right? And it doesn't take too long for, you know, Jimmy, Gene to understand just how long it takes for security to do their night checks. So he uses his stopwatch and he times the security guard as he's eating his Cinnabon every night and they're talking about games. You know, Gene doesn't know anything about sports, but next thing you know, he's doing his research about sports so he can do, you know, nice small talk with the security guard going back and forth, shooting the shit, so to speak. And, uh, yeah, next thing you know, he figures out that it takes about three minutes and 15 seconds, roughly, for the security guard to eat the Cinnabon that he brings to him and then turn around and look at the monitors where all the stores are, right? So... The plan that Gene hatches is to sneak Jeff in using the delivery bay in a box uh, at the end of the night, deliver to this this department store that'll allow Jeff to hop out of the box, uh, go around the store, steal all the expensive belongings, hop back in the box only to get taken away uh, when the erroneous package is, is picked up by Gene's crew the next day, right? So... Pretty simple con, uh, not even close to the best uh, thing that G- Slippin' Jimmy's definitely ever concocted. I mean, let's just be honest here. Poor old Howard, despite how sad it was how Howard went down and how everything transpired, the con that Jimmy and Kim were pulling was some next-level con shit. Like, holy shit, they were getting away with basically the end of a man they were ending a man and uh they were getting away with it pretty smoothly if i do say so myself including how they were handling the sandpiper situation but anyhow back to modern times we got gene takovic setting up this little mini con for jeff uh jeff gets in you know to his own head and says to jimmy when they're practicing you know three armani suits for me two michael jordan shoes for you um Jeff's starting to kind of get wise and think to himself, this is pretty stupid, right? Uh, but of course, you know, Gene is able to convince him, Saul's able to convince him that, look, this is, you know, how it gets done. You want to do small ticky-tack crime because you ultimately get away with it unnoticed, unharmed, unscathed, and you'll be able to make a little generous portion of money without having to sweat exactly how it got done, right? So, you know, just listen to me. I'm the mastermind. So, of course... The day comes, uh, the woman at the department store, the manager, wants to deny the shipment, but feels bad because of the way Jean's coercing her on the phone, so she's going to keep the box overnight, and then Jean's crew's going to come back and pick it up in the morning uh, with Jeff in tow and all the illegal stolen items in tow, right? So, as they go through the plot, Jeff's running through the store, picking up all the Armani suits and the Michael Jordan shoes, etc., etc., uh, he slips and falls on his head and clearly gets concussed, gets knocked out unconscious briefly. And so Gene, Saul, has to go back into his bag and uh, trick the security guard. But what's interesting about the scene uh, is that it doesn't necessarily appear that Gene is full-on acting because he mentions his dead brother. And in the moment where he mentions, as he starts to profusely break down and cry in front of the security guard to distract him from looking back at the cameras uh, for a little bit longer after the three and a quarter minutes, he's talking about his dead brother. And 
you get the idea that he's definitely remembering Chuck. Like, in the moment, he's absolutely thinking about Chuck. He becomes incredibly sullen uh, and soft-spoken. It's almost like there's difficulty for, uh, you know, Bob Odenkirk is, is having a difficulty expressing the words, right? I mean, that's why Bob Odenkirk is an excellent actor. Another reason this show is one of the best shows, one of the, you know, candidates for greatest of all time. Uh, he's able to just really give off this air of unease talking about Chuck and his dead brother and like, I can't believe I'm invoking him for this small time petty scheme. And, you know, it's definitely sad in the moment and you can feel that there's real regret, real remorse coming off of him. That's not, that's not all an act. That's using the power of a real emotion to express something fake. Uh, the classic Saul Goodman slipping Jimmy Gene Takovic situation. Well, I guess it's not a Gene Takovic. This is new for Gene, right? Um, so he convinces the security guard that he's having a breakdown and says, oh, I'm alone. I have no wife. I have no family. If I died tomorrow, the Cinnabon would just replace me as manager and they would move on with their business. I don't mean anything to anybody. And the security guard's a little overwhelmed by all that because it seems like he's not the type of person to understand those those really sad uh, inward truths that Gene's laying down. Which, I mean, really, the the sad part about it, too, is that that's all true. I mean, he's not saying anything false. If uh, Saul were to die, then they'd just replace him, and no one would know that he died in the middle of nowhere except for the vacuum guy who moved him there. And it is it is kind of depressing if you think about it, because after everything that, you know, Slippin' Jimmy, Saul Goodman, Gene Takovic has been through with his life, he's uh, pretty close to dying alone. And, you know, I... Definitely understand how sad that idea can be. So, uh, yeah, it's a it's a little bit of a moratorium on loneliness and depression, even though it's all an act just for the security guard. Meanwhile, in the background, Jeff gets up and continues running through the store, gets back uh, to the box, puts all the items in it, and then goes and hides in the restroom, presumably till the next day, which is when, of course, he exits the store uh, like he's just been a customer in the department store. No problemo, right? So... Gene gets back to Jeff's house where they can look at the goods and see exactly the spoils of their their con. And that's when Gene flips the switch and says, you guys have now done theft over 10,000. It's a federal offense. It's called mutually assured destruction, right? It's basically what our nuclear arsenal versus Russia's nuclear arsenal. That's that's the idea of nuclear weapons right now as as a entire world is that if one person presses the button to destroy the other people and they're going to get destroyed in response. Everybody's going to die from nuclear warfare, so that's why no one does it. Mutual assured destruction is the terminology there. And that's what uh, Gene has set up for himself and Jeff. So, Jeff, if you want to uh, snitch on me and to the folks you know in Albuquerque and have them come after me, people that are looking for me and trying to kill me, well, I mean, that's going to send you to jail, Jeff, because now you've done a big boo-boo. Yeah, went ahead and stole all these goods, and I have, uh, I have your ass is essentially what it is. So, Gene is perusing the department store that got robbed at the end of the episode, and he's looking at the jackets, the sports coats, the ties, uh, and a very clear nod to himself, wistfully wishing for the days of Saul Goodman again. Um, I'll tell you what, there's a lot of divisiveness around this episode, Nippy, uh, but I liked it very much. I found it very artistic, very, uh, like I said, wistful is the word. Uh, wistfully, Gene is 
wondering about those Saul Goodman days, wondering if he can't get back to them, wondering if this is just his life now, making Cinnabons, uh, no more slipping, just doing everything straight, or if he can, you know, pull a couple side jobs, con jobs and whatnot. So overall, I thought this episode was really great. I love the flipping the switch Gene does on Jeff at the end of the episode. It's it's classic Saul Goodman slipping Jimmy Con situation. He he they pull off a con together, and then really it was actually Saul Con and Jeff to get him off his ass and presumably keep himself safe from the threats of of Jeff potentially airing him out to the people that are trying to kill him in Albuquerque back home. So. I think this is a great episode, just further cementing the GOAT status of this show. Uh, some people compare it to the Breaking Bad Fly episode. If you're familiar with Breaking Bad and you watch that series, of course, there's the episode with the fly, which now we know is from Howard and, and um, Lazo's dead body, Lalo's dead body, dead bodies that are buried under the meth lab, uh, presumably anyhow. Some people didn't like the fly episode, thought it didn't really fit with the theme of the show. Um, you know, I love the fly episode, thought it was great. Just kind of showing how people can go completely mad, uh, with, with Jesse and, and Walter kind of losing their shit over this fly. Uh, and now of course with the breaking bad additions to the universe, there's just even further exposition and backstory behind why that flies even in that meth lab, that crystal cre clean, pristine meth lab got a fly. Cause there's two dead bodies, uh, hidden at the base of it. So great episode, nippy. For better cause, Saul. Only three more left. Uh, the next one, I expect we probably see Walt and Jesse finally. But I don't think we've seen the end of Jeff or Gene Takovic yet. So I would say that, you know, I believe that, that Jimmy is a little bit overconfident in his ability to have wrangled Jeff and kept him in his corner regarding not snitching on Jimmy or Gene. Uh, I think this might come back to bite him. I think that Jeff might snitch on him because... He doesn't appreciate the way that, you know, Jimmy handled the situation. If you remember at the end, Gene's telling him, tell it, say it, say it, say we're done, say it, say it. It's very forceful, uh, very, very much in the in memory of how Walter White would talk to him. And he, Walter White would tell him, I'm the one who says when we're done, I say when we're done. Um, you know, a little bit of the shoe on the other foot scenario going on there. But I think this might come back to bite Jimmy. It's a little bit hub it's filled with a little hubris. And I think this might actually uh, this might be Jimmy slipping. Okay, let's go ahead and talk about San Diego Comic Con this year, the Marvel panel. Uh Lots of things got announced at this Comic-Con for Marvel. So a big issue that people have had with Phase 5 uh, with Marvel, or sorry, Phase 4 with Marvel so far, is a lack of cohesive information. Lots of things seem to separate from one another. There's lots of talk about where is this going, where is this leading to, a lot of people starting to question the plan. You know, obviously with the first Marvel, it took years for the first phase to wrap up before you had any understanding of, you know, who the Avengers were and where the overall arc of the Marvel Cinematic Universe was headed. Uh, we certainly didn't have much Thanos before Phase 2. So it is a little bit crazy to me that people are getting so up in arms about where we are in the cycle of the Marvel Cinematic Universe at this point. But um, I do understand that things seem a little disseparate. Uh, so, 
you know, I think that their goal at San Diego Comic-Con was kind of to reassure fans of the MCU, which is, you know, a lot of people on this planet. Let's just say, you know, if they had a dollar for, like, the average gross of every film they've done, it'd be, like, you know, a billion dollars. So if every person represented a dollar, it's, like, a billion people that are intrigued about the state of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we're going to be headed in the future, and things of that nature, right? So it is important that they kind of keep us informed uh, and... For the better part of the last few years with the pandemic, despite the outpouring of Disney Plus shows, the increase in Marvel projects that are being released every year, uh, it does feel like we don't have a cohesive endpoint or understanding of what destination that we're driving towards, which is strange because, you know, we should have a little bit more information than we currently have. Uh, even if it's the first phase in a new saga, we haven't really done a great job driving the point on where the car is headed or where the flight is headed to. So I'm personally fine with that. I could have waited another year to find out. You know, I know we have the Marvels on the horizon next year. We've got Ant-Man Quantumania coming up, which obviously stars Jonathan Majors as Kang. So I think I could have waited till next Comic-Con to release a lot of this information, but... You know, I don't blame Marvel for doing this because ultimately a lot of people were questioning where the hell we're going with all this. What What is the point of all this, right? So even if the shows are great, you know, you love Loki, you love WandaVision, you love Thor, you love Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness. You're asking yourself, where is all of this headed and how is it going to cohesively tie together? <coughs> Pardon me. So they announced the phase five, which begins with Ant-Man Quantumania, which is strange because I didn't think that was the case. Uh, uh, then you have Secret Invasion, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, Echo is a Disney TV series like Secret Invasion, uh, Loki Season 2, The Marvels, uh, Blade, Ironheart is a Disney TV series uh, featuring Riri Williams, the new presumptive uh, Iron Man of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, since she kind of takes over uh, developing the, techno the Stark technology. Um, like I said, Blade, of course, Agatha, Coven of Chaos, changed from House of Harkness, which I enjoyed, like, just, like, the words. It sounds like House of Darkness. It was House of Harkness. Now it's Coven of Chaos, presumably meaning there will be more witches because a coven is a group of witches. Uh, so we'll probably be dealing with some more witch characters from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Then we got Daredevil, Born Again. Very excited for that. Heard it's an 18-episode run, which is... Everything I've been asking from Disney Plus TV shows, please do more episodes. Stop with the six-episode nonsense. Give us more exposition. Give these characters more time to breathe so that we can fall in love with them, you know. And not everything's going to be a Loki or a, a WandaVision, but you can make something like Miss Marvel truly special if you just give it more time because Miss Marvel was amazing, uh, and it could have been like an all-timer if they had just given it a couple more episodes to breathe. Uh, and then... The end of Phase 5 finishes out with Captain America New World Order. Interesting name, that's for sure. Uh, and then Thunderbolts, which will be, you know, the Marvel equivalent of the Suicide Squad. It's essentially a bunch of bad superheroes teaming up to do good. Um, it's going to be very exciting, I think. And then in uh, a total shocking surprise, I think that was the back half of the panel... Uh, was season uh, phase six rather not season phase six sorry calling it seasons like they're splitting this thing up and Marvel's one giant television show uh, phase six of the Marvel Cinematic Universe this is where things get really interesting it starts off with Fantastic Four 
presumably introducing us to to Doctor Doom. Can't wait for that. One of my favorite villains of all time. Hasn't been done right yet, but I am looking forward to someone doing a good treatment for Doctor Doom, Victor Doom. Um, and then near the end of Phase 6, we're given two Avengers titles. We got Avengers the Kang Dynasty and Avengers Secret Wars. Now, I'm not a comic book guy. I don't like to read ahead. I don't like to spoil myself. Just the same way that I don't read light novels or manga when I like want to watch an anime and I'm waiting for the next season of that anime to come out. Kind of ruins it when you already know what's going to happen. Uh, and sure, some people are going to read the comics because they want to know exactly what Kang Dynasty or Secret Wars means, right? I think Kang Dynasty is less uh, of a known quantity than Secret Wars. I under as I understand it, there is a Secret Wars comic, and it essentially, spoiler alert, revolves around heroes fighting against heroes on uh, like a foreign planet. So they all go to this foreign planet uh, where the the multiverse is kind of colliding on this planet, and so variant uh, versions of characters from different universes are clashing. So you might get like. You know, an X-Men versus a Fantastic Four, an Avengers versus a, a Fantastic Four, uh, you know, all these different uh, all these different heroes fighting each other, but also from different worlds, right? So you might get, like, evil Captain America fighting against good Sam Wilson Captain America, or, like, evil Spider-Man against good Doctor Strange, uh, or those type of those type of uh, interesting battles that could take place there in Secret War. So that's after Kang Dynasty, but both in the same year, six months apart, interestingly. So I'm sure that one leads into the other. The Kang Dynasty is even more interesting, though, because you got to wonder, is Kang going to be the main villain of Secret Wars? Or is someone going to take that mantle from him? And they're going to defeat Kang during Kang Dynasty. So... What's interesting about the Kang factor, and this is all in, uh, apparently Phase 4, 5, and 6 are dubbed the Multiverse Saga. So this is all dealing with multiversal threats. The first three phases were dubbed the Infinity Saga, dealing with the Infinity Stones, of course. Um, what's interesting to me about all of this is the Kang factor, because Kang is uh, a threat throughout time. So the way that they're going to potentially have to deal with Kang is almost certainly going to have to involve the quantum realm or time because you know without doing that you can't fully eradicate the threat that is Kang because he exists everywhere along the timeline there's so many variant versions of him as we learn from he who remains in that infamous Loki finale uh, and by destroying he who remains they cut themselves off of kind of this central finite curve like Rick and Morty situation they've got going on. So like all of the variant Kangs, including Kang the Conqueror, obviously from Kang Dynasty and from Quantumanium, are going to be breaching the multiversal timeline. So like it's not that they're going to have to defeat one Kang. They're going to need to defeat like dozens or hundreds of Kangs uh, in order to, to deal with these to deal with this threat pr appropriately. And then they're going to head on to Secret War, presumably the aftermath of having a multiversal battle with Kang because, you know, it's not going to be as simple as you defeated Kang, so everything's better now, right? Like, the multiverse is going to be splintered, there's going to be lots of issues, and then presumably, whether Kang is still alive or another villain, you know, takes the mantle from him upon his death, using his death uh, as leverage to make their own make their own claim for throne of villainy. Uh, that's when we're going to get ourselves a secret war, 
So I'm really excited for that. I mean, it's nice to know that we're leading somewhere. We're going to get a, a conclusion in the form of dual Avengers game, uh, rather films, just like we did with the Infinity Saga. I don't expect that these films are going to be better than Infinity War and Endgame. And I just want people to realize that. Like, as a brief aside, uh, you know, in life, there will be peaks and valleys. But you got to understand that you're not always going to reach the same highs that you previously reached. Like, sometimes you peak, and that was that was where you got to. And that's you just got to accept that that's as far as you got, and it's not going to get better than that. Like, I don't know. If we're ever going to have better than Infinity War as an Avengers film. Endgame was great too. Don't get me wrong. But I personally prefer Infinity War. Uh, and I think that we're, we may never reach those heights again. Because asking to do so is very difficult. We hear all these issues with the the visual effects. People having issues with Marvel and their time crunches. So of course now more and more Marvel projects are coming out. But if the VFX people aren't getting paid. Or they're very upset about their role and these time crunches, then that's going to have to put a slow roll on how much content Marvel can put out. And I think that that is going to mean at a certain point that the current nature of Marvel is unsustainable. Uh, we can't have this much content coming out this fast all the time. So, you know, I hope that we really land the plane with Kang Dynasty and Secret Wars. I hope these next Avengers movies are great. People really enjoy them, have a great time. But at the same time, you know, maybe temper expectations going forward because if we are as lucky as to get something as brilliant as a conclusion as Infinity War and Endgame again, I don't expect that we'll ever get that high again. I think that would be it. We All we can do is hope that these movies can attain the level that the Infinity and Endgame did. Uh, and if they don't, then we got to give them a break too because that's realistically, you know, like I said, peaks and valleys, right? And, and peaking... Uh, with Endgame is possible, and that might be as high as we ever get. Another brief aside before we close off this topic, I was not excited for Black Panther Wakanda Forever, not at all, especially without Chadwick Boseman. Black Panther wasn't my favorite Marvel movie. I know that's heresy to say, but I don't even put it in the top ten. Uh, it was a very good movie, not a great movie, and I wasn't excited for Black Panther 2 before Obviously, Chadwick Boseman's unfortunate passing due to cancer. Fuck cancer. Can I just say that again? Fuck cancer. Got my father, too, just a couple of years ago. We're coming up on the three-year anniversary of that here next week. Um, but I wasn't excited for Black Panther 2. And then I saw this trailer, Wakanda Forever, that they released at San Diego Comic-Con. And it's going to end Phase 4. And holy shit. Uh, Namor is going to be released and they're going to deal with like the Atlanteans and it looks amazing and I didn't want to see the movie but now I really want to see the movie that trailer is a definition of how to drive some hype up because I didn't want to see a film and now I got to see it on opening day Alright, let's go ahead and talk about The Gray Man, a new Netflix film just dropped starring Ryan Gosling, uh, Billy Bob Thornton, Anna de Armas, and Chris Evans. Um, what I will say is this felt like one of the more generic action films. I feel like Netflix puts out these pretty generic red box films like was Red Notice with Ryan Reynolds, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, and uh, Gal Gadot. It was pretty enjoyable, pretty enjoyable, above average, mildly enjoyable, but that was just a lot of charisma, I think, on the part of The Rock, Ryan Reynolds, and Gal Gadot, um, pretty much playing the characters that they're always known to play, which is good 
because you've never had that team up of actors and actresses in a film before. But ultimately, this one kind of left me wanting more. So there were a couple of things I did like about the film. Uh, I guess I did like Chris Evans as like this kind of snide villain with a mustache, kind of a psychopath role for him, which we haven't really seen a lot of yet, just yet. Um, I also did like this character named uh, the Lone Wolf was what they called him, his code name. He steals the drive from Anna de Armas and Ryan Gosling that has all the information about the Sierra program. Um, played by an actor, I guess his name is Danush, but his fighting technicals, like his skills uh, in the combat, and the hand-to-hand combat scene was great. Uh, the limited acting they did ask him to do was very well done, I thought. Uh, he was one of the brighter spots in the film, honestly, and he's one of the nameless actors, you know, quote unquote nameless compared to the likes of a Billy Bob Thornton or a Chris Evans or a Ryan Gosling, of course. Um, I think a lot of people know just who Anna de Armas is. Jessica Henwick's also in the film briefly. Um, I think a lot of people know who Anna de Armas is. Anna de Armas rising up the uh, wall of fame for all you boys out there with posters, all you youngins. Um, but yeah, so. But this wasn't this wasn't the best. I think uh, the Rousseau brothers made this, right? Yeah, so it was Joe and Anthony Rousseau, of course, the directors of Endgame, uh, that did this film for Netflix. I know that they've already rushed a greenlit, a sequel. They're going to do more Gray Man. There's going to be a spinoff. Um, sure, okay, I get it. But realistically this movie wasn't that great and i'm not gonna let it off the hook ryan gosling does okay as an action film star but not great i enjoyed him in blade runner 2049 um but i didn't think he was great in this he didn't have a lot of personality um at all really uh i feel like the kid who played uh the kid who the that that ryan that ryan gosling's character was trying to save uh was actually probably the best actress in the film uh claire i think was her name yeah it's it fitz's kid right uh or fitz's nephew or niece rather that that gets kidnapped so fitz has to turn on sierra six played by ryan gosling um and that kind of like sets off the plot which is where you know sierra six is trying to recover fitz's niece slash daughter um that he has obviously had personal interaction with. She's been sick. And at one point or another, six was guarding her as her bodyguard. Uh, so there's a bit of a history there, but I think that the daughter did a better job acting in this film than Ryan Gosling did to be completely frank. Uh, Chris Evans, like I said, his performance was pretty good. I don't think that there's been a lot of movies where Chris Evans has had the, the chance to kind of open up and be villainous to be a heel and antagonist. So he really, he, it seems like he took some pleasure in acting out the role of uh, a full-on army psychopath or like, you know, war, warmongering psychopath. He looks like he's in this film, he's like in a, he's in the private sector, and so he's not beholden to the same laws that agencies are held to, government agencies are held to. So he kind of gets to be a little bit more of a rogue agent. He's just killing and torturing, doing whatever it takes to get the information or get the job done that he's looking to get done. Uh, I think one of the funnier lines in the film is later. It's uh, it's cheesy, it's campy, but he's shooting. They're shooting up. I think they're in Italy, and they're shooting up, or they're somewhere in Europe, and he's shooting up uh, a building, 
and he sa- and he says, "You're making me destroy this national monument, or you're making me destroy this this work of art," because uh, he's he's you know machine gun firing into a into a fancy building with uh with great architecture, but anyhow, um, otherwise it's pretty forget it's forgettable movie. Uh, I think they paid a lot of movie for the uh, sorry money for this movie. It's a two hundred million dollar budget, which just makes you wonder like. Well, who's making the decisions? Because you can't just pour two hundred million dollars into a movie this average, uh, and just hope that it works out. It almost feels like we're greenlighting sequels for this based on almost nothing. It's July twenty eighth as I record this podcast. This film released on July twenty second, and you know, from what I've heard from my friends, from their friends, from anybody that's like as we're crowdsourcing our reactions to this film. Nobody loved it. So if, like, you know, me and, uh, I don't know, my five, six best friends who all love watching film and television, if we all didn't love this movie and it cost you $200 million to make it, you're greenlighting a sequel and it hasn't even been seven days yet? What are we doing? I mean, who's making the decisions? Somebody's got to talk to somebody at Netflix because, you know, between this and some of the password issues and like the increase in subscription prices and adding ad revenue and stuff like that to Netflix, they are asking desperately to have their share price tank even greater than it did earlier this year because Netflix was hemorrhaging in their share prices earlier this year on the stock market. And if they keep up this this line of decision making that they're currently on, uh, that price is going to plummet even further. And uh, this company's not going to be worth very much in the near future because they keep making mistakes. Uh, you know, you got content providers like HBO Max, you know, uh, Apple, Disney Plus, all making pretty great content when they put out content. But these guys are just putting out average after average after average. And then they make sequels to the average. And you're just like, you know, we don't really need this. Uh, so yeah, my review of the gray man is that it is a C film. I would rate it a C. Uh, that's my grade for it. Uh, put it as a hard six. If I'm rating it out of 10, six and a C kind of got to figure out what my fucking format is going to be for rating these films when I do this shit. But, uh, yeah, not something worth your two hours of time if I'm being honest. So oh, I'm sorry, Jesus, it's, uh, more than two hours. So but not really worth your time. So you go ahead and feel free to skip this and probably the sequel too. All right, so let's go ahead and close out this week's episode with a little discussion about the true season finale for The Old Man, FX's television show starring Jeff Bridges, John Lithgow, Alia Shawcat, and now, as of this episode, one of my favorite actors... All the way back from Legion on FX as well, that would be one Navid Nagban, who is starring as the aged version of the antagonist of this series. That would be Faraz Hamzad. Um, looking forward to seeing what he can bring in season two, since we only get the real introduction to him here in season one. But um, Alias Shawcat's character. Emily uh, or Amanda, she plays several names, or sorry, Angela, Angela or Emily, um, and now Parnam, uh, as we find out as a spoiler, the end of this episode, she's been kidnapped by the old man, so the old man would be uh, a character that 
is named Morgan Boat. Morgan Boat is basically a father figure, a parental figure for both John Lithgow's character, Harold Harper, and Jeff Bridges' character, Dan Chase. Uh, He obviously was the one who taught them everything that they know about being in a government agency, being an operative for the U.S., uh, for the CIA, the FBI, etc., Um, But he also was the one who planted Emily slash Angela into the care of Harold Harper without him knowing that that was Daniel Chase's daughter. Um, And it's actually not Daniel Chase's daughter, but we'll get there. So this episode starts off with them trying to Harold Harper and Dan Chase working together, trying to figure out how to get Angela slash Emily back. Uh, from the the custody of Morgan Boat, who sent his assassin's crew to kidnap her, right? Um, and it looks like Hamza just wants Daniel Chase on an airplane in his custody, so it's going to be a simple trade. Uh, as long as, uh, you know, Jeff Bridges hops on a plane and goes to see Faraz Hamzad, then Emily slash Angela will be released back into the care of Harold Harper. We'll get to go home. No problem. Forget about it. And Morgan Boat will leave them alone. Um, But that's not what's going to happen in this episode, obviously. We get an excellent scene where Hamzad's crew surrounds Boat's crew, who has Emily slash Angela, and they uh, are able to take out two-thirds of the Boat crew and retake Emily Angela from them leading to the idea, or the revelation, rather, that it wasn't Daniel Chase that Faraz Hamzad wanted all along. It was actually Angela Emily, who turns out to be Parnam, who is actually the daughter of Faraz Hamzad. So what is revealed during the episode is that Harold Harper is alluding to the fact that Daniel Chase hasn't been completely honest with Harper. So back in the day when he uh, had Harper assist him and his wife, uh, Hamzad's wife, escaping Afghanistan Uh, when he got Harold Harper's assistance to do so he asked for two plane tickets Um, not three plane tickets but he could have because it turns out there was a third passenger along with those two escaping Afghanistan and that was the daughter of Faraz Hamzad so all of these years Faraz Hamzad has presumably been looking for his daughter wondering where she is and she's been in the United States of America, first with Daniel Chase and his wife, and then under the care of Harold Harper uh, as a member of the CIA, right? So under the protection of the government of the United States of America. So now that the government is giving Faraz Hamzad everything he wants, he has, you know, the means and the capability to kind of force the hand, force the issue, uh, get certain parties on a plane. So he got Harold Harper on a plane, knowing that Emily and Angela, uh, Emily slash Angela was under the protective care of Harold Harper, which how he figured that out remains to be seen. There's a lot of questions that need to be answered, but we'll get to those here in a minute. Uh, Gets Harold Harper on a plane, which gets Angela Emily on a plane, which is how he's able to get her into his custody. Morgan Boat takes custody of Angela Emily, and then Hamzad takes custody of her from the that group there. So. Dan Chase thinks he's going to give himself up and it's going to be an equal exchange. Finds out quickly that those plans have gone awry. They head back uh, and find that the 
the town where Emily Angela was being held got ambushed, and uh, she's now in the care of Faraz Hamzad. So they they end out with the episode. They're headed towards an airfield. We don't know where they're headed. Presumably for Faraz Hamzad to have discussions regarding the daughter. Um, but the the interesting thing about this uh, and where we end up with this season is we have three men that all have a claim on one young woman as their daughter, right? So Faraz Hamzad, um, who's going to, like I said, going to be played by Navid Nagman, who is a fantastic actor. Cannot wait to see those scenes with him in season two. Um, that's her biological father. And then you have Dan Chase, who has always been her father in, in, in fact. She, she believes that that's her biological father. And then you have, you know, good old-fashioned Harold Harper, who in spirit has been, you know, a placebo, has been the father for her as Angela while she's been a part of, this, of the Central Intelligence Agency, right? So you have three men vying for the fatherhood of one woman, um, and that's a very interesting thing. I think there are a lot of unanswered questions going into season two as well, like how did Hamzad know that Boat's crew, that Morgan Bodie's crew had Emily, Amanda, how did Morgan Bodie know where to get Amanda from? How, how are these people getting their information? It definitely feels as though the old man in this, the old man in the titular old man of this television series could be several people. Harold Harper's an old man. Dan Chase is an old man. Uh, Faraz Hamzad is an old man. Morgan Bodie, the father figure for both Chase and Harper is an old man. They actually refer to him as the old man. So, who is it specifically that the series title is referring to? Uh, how is it that Bodhi, uh, the information that Faraz Hamzad gets about Bodhi and the whereabouts of Emily, Amanda, uh, Angela, sorry, I keep, <laughs> I keep messing that shit up. Uh, how is he getting this information? There's a lot of questions to, to effectively answer in season two, and that's very exciting because we're going to get, you know, like I said, Naveed Nagman, and then we're going to get more Jeff Bridges. We're going to get more John Lithgow. Aaliyah Shawcat's been doing an excellent job in this series as well. Everybody's kind of acting their tails off. Really good writing. I guess this is based on um, this is based on a novel. Uh, so it's The Old Man by Thomas Perry. Um, might have to read that book now based on everything because I'm interested to see if the source material, you know, lines up so there is a season two or if like the conclusion of season one is kind of where the book ends and they're going all natural from here uh this was all directed of course by john watts who did all the spider-man films recently uh so we got a great director uh producer doing all this stuff uh yeah if you haven't seen the old man it's seven episodes of television it's an hour long each episode so roughly seven hours give or take a couple of minutes um but it's absolutely worth your time i give it my highest recommendation one of the best shows of the year so far i cannot express that enough so go ahead and check that out on fx